everyone for showing up. We really appreciate you guys coming out today. So, what is up, Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest? I'm Trista. And I'm Steven. And together, we're Olympia Oddities. Before we get into our case today, we thought it would be a good idea to kind of explain what we are and what we do for people who might not be familiar with us. We're a podcast that covers Pacific Northwest-based cryptids, true crime, UFO sightings, hauntings, bizarre history, anything that's like weird and spooky pretty much that takes place in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I started it in 2018 after I left an abusive relationship and it was kind of like a really cool project to uh, like reclaim myself. And then I met Steven in, Steven. <laughs> in 2020 and we started dating and realized that we both are complete weirdos who love weird stuff and then we were like okay the only natural thing to happen is to have you join on <laughs> yeah it's been pretty fun ever since and now we're the dream team <laughs> today we're here to tell you about the unsolved disappearance of matthew anfelt we chose this case for a few reasons the first being the location that it took place it's very close to where i live and where steven used to live about 10 to 15 minutes away from my house um, we both spent quite a, amount, uh, quite a bit of time in Grand Mound and the surrounding areas, and I've worked jobs in the area. Another reason I wanted to cover this is because I am in recovery, and Matthew's story of addiction and how hard he was working to become sober really, really resonated with me. And I find that often um, people with addiction problems, their stories kind of get... The drugs take the front seat, um, or they just don't really get much representation at all. Um, so I thought that it was really important to share his story because, um, especially compared to the other, you know, all attention to cases in the area is a good thing, but compared to some of the cases in the area, his case really doesn't get a lot. All right. You ready? The hitting the button? Hit the button. All right. I was supposed to tell you to hit the button for this one. Oh. This is us and Bob Gimlin of Patterson Gimlin fame, the guy who took like the most famous Sasquatch photo ever. Something kind of funny about this is there's a little bit of boob grabbage happening in there. So I thought before we started, I'd just point out a little bit of funniness there. <laughs> so Matthew had just turned 20 the month uh, previous to the night of his disappearance. His birthday was January 27th, and he disappeared on February 28th, 2019 from Grand Mound, Washington. Grand Mound is kind of a weird area. It's rural with lots of wide open spaces, but it still kind of has houses that are close in proximity to each other. And it's kind of a weird area where two towns blend together, Rochester and Tenino. If this area sounds familiar to you, it might be because of several notable true crime cases. This area is close to where Nancy Moyer and Logan Schindelman disappeared and is nearby the uh, site where Karen Bodine's remains were discovered after her still unsolved murder. The circumstances surrounding Matthew's disappearance are odd, to put it lightly, since there wasn't a ton of information about this case online, and most of the info out there only covered bare minimum details, I put in a request with Thurston County for all records relating to the disappearance of Matthew. Those records, or those documents, are our main source for this episode, along with the Charlie Project, and then when we release our episode to everyone in the show description, as always, we'll have all the newspaper articles and everything linked for you guys to go check out yourself if you want to. On the day of February 28th, Matthew went bowling in Longview with his sister Cheyenne and her boyfriend. In her interview with investigators, Cheyenne told them that her brother was really tired that day and that he had told her that he had been awake for three days as some part of an internet challenge that he was doing. 
She told them that Matthew had showed her posts that he'd made during his time um, on his social media accounts, which was his way of proving that he'd been awake the entire time. The reports also say that she thought he was pretty crazy for taking part in this challenge. They went bowling around 1 p.m. and then headed back to the house. While they hung out, they recorded a couple videos of them just hanging out being goofy. One shows Matthew bowling, and in another one, Matthew is freestyle rapping. Matthew loved music and was trying to follow his dreams of making it one day. His stage name was either M.T. Hayes or Mount Hayes. I never found it, like, pronounced anywhere, so either one, I'm not sure. I think Mount Hayes <laughs> sounds Mount, dope. I think it sounds, yeah, that's what I'm going with, because that sounds, rad. right? Yeah. And he would often post videos of himself freestyling on his page. One of his last posts on his page reads, If I plug headphones in, I want peace and distractions from all the bullshit in my life. And I really think that sums up about how Matthew felt about music and how important it was to him. Matthew had previous, addiction, previous issues with addiction, but was thought to be sober in the months before his disappearance. While Cheyenne didn't see Matthew take any drugs or drink alcohol that day, she had told the police that Matthew's eczema was really bad around his nose. She mentioned this because while Matthew always struggled with eczema, his drug use in the past had caused it to flare up badly before. She even mentioned to Matthew that day that it looked really bad, and he just kind of shrugged her off and said, really? After Cheyenne, uh, Matthew and Cheyenne's boyfriend arrived back at home. The boyfriend took off and headed back to his place. Cheyenne and Matthew headed to her room, which was in a detached garage next to the house, to hang out. She recalled them laying on opposite sides of the bed, just talking. They talked about how tired Matthew was, mainly understandable, because he was taking part in that insane internet it's challenge. It's just crazy. Yeah, I know. You don't <laughs> want to mess with lack of sleep, people. It's very important. Um, they also joked about the internet urban legend that was in full force at the time, Momo. I don't know if anyone remembers like that weird, creepy statue that went around. Um, they joked around about how Matthew should text Momo, but he didn't have his phone on him. So Cheyenne told him to go get his phone, and he said he was too tired to go grab it. But then he changed his mind and eventually decided to go up and get his phone. He left her room and walked outside. After about 20 to 30 minutes of Matthew not returning, Cheyenne started to question what had happened. She thought it was weird that it took him that long just to go grab his phone. You know, you'd think that that'd be a really quick in and you're right back. Um, but because he was so tired, she wondered if he could have just fallen asleep on the couch or something. She decided to look around for him, eventually going outside where she saw a sheriff's deputy patrol car sitting in their driveway. Unknown to Cheyenne, after Matthew went outside, he had run over to their neighbor's house in a panic, yelling that his entire family was dead and he was in danger too. What's important to note is that his family was completely fine. Uh, when investigators interviewed this neighbor, he, she said that someone had uh, suddenly begun banging on her front door very heavily, which caused her dog to freak out. She said that the knocking was so loud that it actually startled her too. She opened the door and recognized Matthew as she had known him growing up and was actually one of his previous teachers in school. The neighbor had cracked the door a bit so that she could ask Matthew what was wrong. Matthew was yelling over and over, my family, my family. She said that Matthew looked like he was scared out of his mind. Teresa was worried that her dog would bite Matthew in his agitated state, so she, so she told him to hold on and that she would call 911 for him. Once the door was closed, uh, he ran a lap around her house. The neighbor was worried and kind of unsure of what he was going to do. You know, I can't blame her there. If anyone shows up at your house and they're like that panicked, it's like, got to protect yourself too, you know. Um, but she caught glimpses of him running around and grabbed her phone and called 911, which is awesome. Very good thing to do in that situation. 
Uh, by the time she'd gotten hold of the police, though, unfortunately, Matthew had already taken off. He ran between her house and the other neighbors through the fields towards, towards Old Highway 99. As she was on the phone with the cops, she relayed the information to them. He entered the roadway of Old Highway 99, and she saw cars begin to stop on the road for him. She watched him climb into the bed of a white truck that had a lot of utility-type toolboxes in the back. The truck headed southbound on Old Highway 99, and that was the last time that the neighbor ever saw Matthew. The neighbor reported that aside from Matthew's totally bizarre behavior, he didn't seem to be injured at all. She didn't notice any injuries or blood on him, and the investigators asked if the neighbor had... Oh, the investigators asked the neighbor if he'd been wearing shoes, but unfortunately she had not been able to pay attention to that during this encounter. Matthew popped up next at the Speedway Grocery, which, yeah, we have a little map here that shows. So that first dot is where he was on the road, first stopping cars. And then the uh, pin is the Speedway Grocery, which is his last known final location. Matthew popped up next at the Speedway Grocery, where he entered the store and kept repeating what he had told the neighbors and the drivers passing him, that someone had harmed his family and that they were after him too. The clerk also called 911, and Matthew left the building out of a side door, and this was the last time Matthew Anfelt was seen. Investigators learned from Sarah, Matthew's mom, that Matthew had been employed by LaborWorks, a temporary work agency in Lacey. Investigators learned that LaborWorks employees were paid on prepaid visa cards called Global Cash Cards. Matthew had left his card behind at home when he disappeared. Investigators asked if there was any way to view the activity on this type of card, but the um, person working there explained that there was not because it wasn't a usual bank account type situation. The only thing that they were able to do was deposit pay onto them. The investigators also asked LaborWorks if there was any way that Matthew could access his money without having his card physically on him, you know, trying to see if he'd maybe like left willingly and had access to money. Um, she thought that there might be a way for them to do that, but it would involve like downloading like a third party app and then transferring the money that way. That's not scammy. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Sorry. I hate those things. No, I, I can't. Stand I know them. I do too. Um, uh, so the police pretty much moved on with their investigation at that point, realizing that they probably weren't going to get a lot of leads out of labor works and the card, unfortunately. On a trip to question both Sarah and Matthew's sister Cheyenne, the police collected some DNA from a toothbrush and a razor that had been left behind by Matthew in their downstairs bathroom. Sarah had also informed them that she had discovered some pills missing from one of her prescription bottles. The police asked to see Matthew's room, uh, the reasoning because they thought that this was where the uh, missing drugs had been discovered, and Sarah explained that... Um, she hadn't found any drugs and that she'd actually found missing prescription drugs and that Matthew didn't actually have a room at their residence and was instead sleeping on their couch. This is because, um, you know, addiction is a very difficult thing. It doesn't affect one person. It affects every single person in your life. And he'd been staying at S Sarah's sister house, Sarah's sister's house, a little bit of a tongue twister there, in Lacey. Uh, but because he had been sober for several months, they'd allowed him to come stay the weekend and the plan had been for him to return to his aunt's after the weekend. Sarah explained that she had kept her prescribed lorazepam in the downstairs bathroom. She explained that after Matthew went missing, she had gone downstairs and checked on them. When she checked the bottle, she discovered that only a few pills remained. Sarah wasn't currently taking this medication, so the bottle should have been full. Sarah then told the investigators that she believed Matthew had been the one to take the pills, but she didn't know when he took them, if he took the full amount at one time, or if he'd been taking, you know, a couple here and there versus a large amount all at once. 
Sarah told the investigators that after Matthew went missing, she had begun talking to some of his friends to try to figure out if they had any knowledge on a strange disappearance, which great idea because, you know, your friends generally know more about you than your family does sometimes. Uh, she reached out to a friend that we'll refer to as T. We're going to do that a couple times in this episode, refer to people, try to keep their privacy, you know. It's going to get a little men in black. <laughs> But luckily, we have this to kind of help with the confusing initials because it's going to be a, a couple of them. Oh, yeah. So T and Matthew had spent the day before Matthew's disappearance, the 27th, together. And when they spoke, T had told Sarah that Matthew had been somewhat depressed about all the major life changes he was going through. Matthew had said that he didn't really know how he was going to make things right or how he was going to get through his criminal charges. And he was also worried about finding a job. The police asked T if Matthew had seemed depressed to the point of being suicidal, but T explained to him that he could tell that he had a lot on his mind and was a little quieter than normal, but he hadn't made any statements that he would consider alarming or alluding at that. T also said when he dropped Matthew off at the end of their day together, Matthew had told him that he had some molly in his pocket, but he wasn't sure if he was going to take it or not. T explained to Sarah that he and Matthew had made plans to hang out on Saturday, but Matthew had never contacted him. Other than the information T gave, they didn't have any other information on what could have happened to Matthew or where he could have gone. Sarah also discovered that Matthew made plans to hang out with another friend on the evening that he ended up disappearing, but he never got into contact with that friend either. The cops then asked Sarah if Matthew had any diagnosed mental health conditions. She told them that he'd previously been diagnosed with ADHD, but she didn't think that ADHD would explain his bizarre behavior in the moments leading up to him vanishing, which I agree with because... You're looking at two people with it right now, and it makes us act, you know, bizarre, but not in that way. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> she informed them that Matthew's father had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, but that she had never seen Matthew display any signs of those conditions himself. Sarah showed the investigators a video that Matthew had posted on his Instagram she explained that she hadn't thought too much of it originally, but after she di or after he disappeared, she began to wonder if it could have had a connection. In the video, Matthew was rapping a song that he had written. The chorus of the song went, should I do it? I don't know. The police reports say that this song is about the Illuminati and basically about Matthew talking about how if he joined, gave up his family and everything he loved, he would have his wildest dreams come true. He continues later in the song saying that it didn't seem right for some reason. And then the chorus again. Should I do it? I don't know. And yes, we are bringing up the Illuminati. But it's not because we thought the Illuminati did it. <laughs> we just have to give that disclaimer now. Are there more slides for this one? No. Okay, cool. Making sure. <laughs> Sorry, I got a little behind a couple of times and I'm like, oh, wait, or ahead. And I was, ah. Uh, no, you're okay, killing cool. it. You're right good. on top of it. Good, good, good. <laughs> Since he had gone missing, Sarah looked into Matthew's email account for clues, which I also think is another really, really smart step. She discovered that Matthew had received several emails from someone claiming to be in the Illuminati. All of these emails had the same sender, an email account called Illuminati666i at hotmail.com. I don't think that that's actually the Illuminati. No, it was my gamer tag in middle school, though. I'd like to think that one of the most powerful world societies wouldn't be using Hotmail, especially in 2020, but who knows? Sarah found that one of these emails had been sent on February 14th and claimed that Matthew had been officially accepted into the Illuminati. It contained an initi initiation code, which was just a string of capital letters and numbers beginning with, you guessed it, 666. 
The email said that Matthew had six days to complete a task, but it never really elaborated on what that task was. Investigators looked at these emails and reported that the grammar was very poor, and the police report says that it appeared to me to be some kind of internet fraud scheme. Despite these obvious scam emails, it was discovered that Matthew had in fact sent them money, and he had sent them about a total of $300. Yeah, not good. Yeesh. That were good? All right. Okay, and during 2020, I was absolutely swamped with Illuminati people contacting me, or Illuminati people contacting me. So I have this lovely message from Tony that says, I am Tony Rexton, Lordship of the Illuminati Lodge of Colorado. So I said, hi, Tony. And then, you know, I just kind of messed with him for a little bit. And he, you know, told me if I joined, I'd get a cool car and all this money. And sometimes you got to mess with the scammers. I remember you telling me about this and I was like, wait, press him a little bit. Let's get that car. He's got, some, he's got some, he's got some good offerings here. Wait. Making a tempting offer, Tony. <laughs> in fact, in the months leading up to Matthew's disappearance, he'd been mentioning the Illuminati a lot. The police files we were sent contained some of Matthew's uh, Facebook search history. And there were several instances of repeated searches for the Illuminati and Illuminati related content. And that kind of stood out to me because it seems like very normal Facebook search activity where it would be like, a couple people's names in a day like maybe he'd gone to like a party and tried to find people and then all of a sudden there'd be like a spurt of like three to five searches for the illuminati all in like a series of like minutes so it just definitely kind of mm. was a little odd that is very odd sarah told the investigators that matthew had talked about wanting to join the illuminati because he desperately wanted to become a famous rapper she told him that he was crazy for it and asked him why he would want to do that Matthew explained to her that he had just been reading up on it. So it sounds like he was kind of like looking into it. And it seems like in the year before his disappearance, he was getting like a little bit more sucked into the rabbit hole of it. Investigators weren't sold on the idea of an Illuminati connection at all. And as it says directly from the police report, I did some more research on, into the Illuminati, and everything that I could find open source stated that the Illuminati were a secret society in the 18th century, but they had disbanded by the turn of the 19th century and no longer exist. That's there, not what I'm told constantly. <laughs> there are conspiracy theories galore about whether they are still some kind of secret society. Now we're talking. <laughs> but by all indications I could locate, including one investigative journalist who attempted to join the Illuminati, in indicated that it's just a fraud scheme that people use to exploit other people for financial gain. No, nah, they were in on it. <laughs> I'm telling you, they were. I could not find a single example of the Illuminati being involved in any missing person. Because they don't want you to know! <laughs> <laughs> Investigators looked into another curious event that possibly occurred before Matthew's disappearance. Sarah explained to them that Matthew had told her that he'd been jumped in the Rite Aid parking lot on Slater-Kinney Road in Lacey sometime in December of 2018. This was just months before his disappearance. Matthew had not reported the incident or filed a police report. In a Q13 Fox article, Detective Hamilton, who works on this case, was quoted as saying, He had mentioned right before he went missing to a couple of friends about some people that were after him, but we haven't been able to develop who those people were. He didn't specifically mention names of who was after him or why they would be after him, so we need information that the public could provide. If anyone out there knows if these incidents are related or any more information about that December 2018 incident, we could try to see if they're connected. The attack had left Matthew with some injuries, the uh, most glaring being the word kill cut into his chest along with some other parts of his body. 
On March 14th, Sarah provided investigators with a tip that she'd received. She'd gotten a phone call from a man named Larry, who had been checking the area of the Speedway grocery, grocery last Sunday or early Sunday morning. He told her that someone had thrown a flashlight at his vehicle as he'd pulled into the parking lot. He didn't see who had thrown the flashlight and was unable to see anyone when he searched the area. So that's a little weird. That's wild. And just throwing a flashlight at a car. That's a waste of a flashlight. I, I like, Those I things can be pricey, the nice ones. See, but you know what's funny? Whenever I hear about somebody throwing something at a car, I just, I immediately have that Napoleon Dynamite scene in my head where he's like throwing a grapefruit at Uncle Rico's car. So yeah, every this that immediately <laughs> got turned into a grapefruit being thrown at a Chevy van. <laughs> On March 29th, investigators placed a call to the Rite Aid where the alleged attack had taken place. They asked if there were any security videos of the incident, but the manager explained that they didn't have any recording or any cameras recording the parking lot, and even if they did, their video records wouldn't go back that far. It's 2022. We need security cameras everywhere. Not everywhere, but you know what I mean. Most like I places. feel like a business, a dark parking lot. We should have some working cameras. <laughs> it would help solve a lot of crimes if we did. <laughs> Faced with another dead end in their investigation, the police got into contact with a man who had been inside the Speedway grocery at the same time as Matthew. When they asked him what he remembered that day, the man, Tyler, recalled seeing a white work truck with a white utility or toolboxes in the bed of the truck pull into the parking lot. He explained that this truck didn't pull into a parking spot, but instead pulled up to the door of the business and Matthew got out of the back of the truck. Tyler thought that Matthew had made a motion like he was going to try to get into the cab of the truck, but the tr driver of the truck took off. He said that after getting out of the truck, Matthew had run straight for the front door and actually ran into it, so he was still in a very panicked, distressed state. It was a pull door, not a push door, and he said that Matthew actually crashed into it pretty hard. Tyler was actually wondered if the store was being robbed because of the way that Matthew was acting. After entering the business, Tyler said that Matthew had run behind the counter and was trying to hide. He was crying, shaking, and repeating over and over that his family had been killed. Because he was looking down and actively trying to hide, Tyler was unfortunately unable to get a good look at his face. The clerk told Matthew to calm down and told him that everything was going to be all right. Matthew then suddenly bolted for the side door of the business and ran out. Their entire encounter lasted just under 30 seconds, and like the neighbor before, um... Oh, I wrote a sentence that went nowhere. <laughs> uh, he said that at the time, he had been genuinely unable to tell if Matthew had been was being chased by someone or if he had just been underneath the influence of something. Tyler finished his transaction and saw the clerk calling 911 as he left. He lived on a road nearby the store, but didn't see any sign of Matthew on his drive back home, which stuck out to me as a little weird because... He immediately left, and then, you know, he just finished his transaction. You'd think he'd just be, like, a minute or two behind him. And he lived pretty close by to the store, and he didn't see any sign of him on any of the roads or fields or anything out there. Yeah, it's a pretty good space of time. Police spoke with Matthew's other friend that he had made plans with for the day of his disappearance. That friend, that we'll call M, said that he had spoken to Matthew earlier that day, but nothing had seemed unusual. They'd made plans during this time to hang out after Matthew returned from bowling, but he had never gotten in contact with M after returning. He discovered that Matthew was missing after he received a Facebook message from an account that he didn't recognize. This turned out to be um, either one of Matthew's friends or an aunt, the police report wasn't very clear, who was uh, sending a message basically asking if he knew where Matthew was, and that's how he learned that his friend was missing. The last communication that this friend M had with Matthew was on the day before. 
The investigators questioned him if Matthew had made any troubling statements about running away or wanting to harm himself, but M said that he hadn't said anything like that at all, and in fact to him, he hadn't seemed depressed at all. They asked if Matthew had any enemies, and he said he wasn't aware of any. The police then moved on to a phone interview with another friend of Matthew's, who were calling D. D told them that about one month prior to Matthew's disappearance, they'd had a conversation about how Matthew's sobriety had been going. Matthew said that he wanted to stay that way because his life had been improving. Like other friends interviewed, they asked D if Matthew had made any sort of suicidal or self-harm related statements to him. D told them that Matthew had gone through some depressive episodes, mainly re- relating to his drug use and trouble with the law. And he recalled a time in late November of t- or December of 2018 when he had noticed some cuts on Matthew's arm. He thought that they might have been self-harm cuts, but he wasn't exactly sure. Um, He said that other than the cuts that he found out of the ordinary, he'd never made any sort of troubling statement to him. He said that Matthew was usually the happy one in their friend group and was usually the guy who was always trying to cheer other people up. He said that if he'd known that his friend had struggled with depression, he would have been there for him. Which is just a reminder that if you are struggling with mental health stuff, reach out. There's a bunch of people who love you and you probably don't even know about it. So the police also asked Dee about the alleged attack that occurred in the Rite Aid parking lot and asked if the cuts Dee saw on Matthew's arm around the same time could have been related. Dee said that Matthew had told him about the Rite Aid incident, but he'd noticed the cuts on Matthew's arm before it had happened, so he didn't think that they were connected. They asked if Matthew had ever told Dee who attacked him that night, but Dee told them that Matthew said that he didn't know who the people were that attacked him, and Dee wasn't really sure if that was true or if he was kind of hiding details of what had happened from him. Uh, Dee also confirmed that Sarah had told them about Matthew's attempt to contact the Illuminati via email, but he said that Matthew had never talked about that subject with him. On May 9th, a new witness was interviewed by investigators. Sarah had contacted the police to let them know that a woman had reached out to her via Facebook to let her know that she had seen Matthew running around on the street the night that he disappeared. Barbara, the witness, told the police that she was traveling southbound on Old Highway 99 on the evening of February 28th. She noticed some cars stopped ahead near the Scatter Creek Bridge. She initially thought it must have been a car accident or something, but when she got closer, she noticed a young man walking around the cars. He was banging on their windows and yelling that his family had been killed and that someone was after him. Barbara Barbara made eye contact with Matthew, and she described him as being in agony. And that really stood out to me, because I'm like, that's not really a word that you use lightly. Um, She hadn't noticed any visible injuries on him, though. She noticed that while he was yelling at the cars, um, none of the vehicles on the scene had any sort of damage to them. Around this time, a white pickup truck, which had been headed northbound, pulled up and stopped on the opposite side of the roadway from her. The driver, who she described as a white male, rolled down his window and began to talk with Matthew. While this was happening, the other cars in front of her began moving again, so she continued on with her drive. She didn't see whether or not Matthew had gotten into the white truck, but as we know from other eyewitnesses, he definitely did. Barbara could have or Barbara told him that she felt bad after seeing missing persons posters for Matthew and felt that she could have done more, but she just didn't know what was going on at the time and didn't really want to get involved. The police followed up on several tips that they got, including one by the before-mentioned friend T, that Matthew was living in the Nesqually Pines apartment in Yelm, but that lead also turned out to be a dead end. The other lead they followed was a reported possible sighting of him outside of a Spanaway donut shop, 
A deputy was sent to the scene but found no sign of Matthew, and when they went inside and talked to the clerks, they didn't recognize him. In June, however, the police got another lead. On the 14th, they were contacted by Sarah's private investigator, who told them that he had received information from a man we'll refer to as A, who had possibly sold Matthew two grams of meth, and that he had heard that Matthew had done all of that meth before disappearing. Um, A had denied any of this happening to a private investigator, but the police decided that it was worth looking into, because at this point it was their strongest lead that they had. On June 21st, the police questioned A and a woman that we'll call E about Matthew's disappearance. E told the investigators that she hadn't seen Matthew in about two years, but A admitted to seeing Matthew just two days before he disappeared. Hold on a second. Am I on the right side? I've been getting mixed up a little bit here. <laughs> One before. One before? Okay, I thought so. Perfect. Sorry. No, you're doing great. So, just some of these slides, some of the some of the paragraphs you wrote, and there were multiple slides, and I'm like, wait a minute, sorry. And we're moving fast because we're okay. doing a, you know, we usually do short episodes that are kind of cruising, <laughs> but we really decided to do a deep dive into this one. A told them that Matthew had contacted him via Facebook Messenger and was trying to trade him some Molly. They had met up at a Lacey motel that A was staying at and that Matthew had brought some ecstasy along with him. A denied ever selling Matthew drugs or being a drug dealer at all and said that they had just talked for a few minutes and then Matthew went on his way. He said that he didn't think that Matthew was under the influence of anything during this meeting. And I don't think that that's how that went down, if I'm completely honest. He explained that he had known Matthew for a long time and that he saw him around occasionally. He also said that Matthew had always been kind to him. The investigators asked A if Matthew could have owed anyone money for drugs, but A hadn't heard of anything like that and was unable to think of a reason why someone would want to hurt Matthew. The police file noted that, throughout the conversation, A did not exhibit any signs or symptoms of being nervous or deceptive while talking with me. He seemed to be forthcoming with the information when I asked him questions. On July 30th, the police conducted another interview, this time with a man named Evan. Sarah had heard some tips through various people that um, involved his name, so she brought it to the investigators. When they asked Evan what he knew about Matthew's disappearance, he told them what he had heard, or he told them that he had heard that A had sold Matthew some meth, but he'd lied to him about what it really was and had told him it was Molly. He said that he'd heard Matthew had done it all at once, thinking it was Molly, and it made him go crazy. The police asked Evan where he had heard this story, and he told them that A had told him it himself. The police asked him if he thought that it could have been an accident or if it had been intentional, and kind of curiously, Evan replied that he probably did it on purpose because A likes to mess with people like that, just to be a jerk. I'd say that's a little bit more than jerk behavior, if that what happened, you know? <laughs> Evan told the investigators about a previous incident with A. During this incident, A had allegedly drugged him, taken all of his money, including his debit card, uh, Evan explained that this had also happened at a motel in Lacey when A's dad had given him a speedball. For those who don't know, a speedball is a mixture of a stimulant and a downer or an uh, opioid, which you know usually cocaine or heroin, fentanyl or morphine are sometimes used. A wasn't good at injecting drugs, so that's the reason why his dad was the one doing it. Evan explained that while he had done speedballs previously, this one was different. He said that it made him feel really lethargic and that he could see and hear everything, but he was unable to move his body. That sounds absolutely terrifying. And he said that while he was in this drug state, uh, A and A's dad took his wallet, which included his mom's credit cards and his phone, so he was unable to call for help. He estimated that he was unable to move for about three or four hours. 
Evan explained that he just didn't know anything else about Matthew's disappearance and what he had heard was just rumors. The police followed with a uh, follow-up interview with A after they discovered that he was being held at the Thurston County Jail on charges unrelated to the case. During this interview, A did admit to selling drugs to Matthew two days before his disappearance. He said that he had sold him some molly and that about one month previous to Matthew's disappearance, he had reached out to Matthew on Facebook Messenger to ask him if he wanted to buy some drugs. Matthew hadn't replied to him until their meeting two days before he vanished. The police asked A if the molly he'd sold Matthew was actually meth, and A explained that most of the molly in this area was cut with meth, so he wouldn't be surprised if it had contained some. Um, but he denied ever selling him meth intentionally. A described their interaction when, when exchanging the drugs as brief and told him that he just sold him the drugs and Matthew left. After not hearing from him for two days, he sent Matthew a Facebook message and he was answered either by Cheyenne or a friend who informed him that he was missing. The investigators asked if the phone that he'd been using to communicate with Matthew was in jail property, but A told them that he no longer had a phone and that his had been f- stolen in downtown Olympia. Well, this is a lot easier if I just look at the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I feel dumb. <laughs> On October 14th, the police called E's mom for a follow-up interview. E was the woman interviewed with A about Matthew's disappearance and the possible misrepresented Molly. Sarah had the feeling that E had more knowledge about the case than she was letting on to the investigators. The police explained to E's mother that Sarah had told them that E had re- uh, reacted negatively to the disappearance when first asked about it. Uh, she'd evidently snapped, don't ask about that, mom. Sarah had thought that this might be because E knew something about it. That is definitely kind of a weird reaction to have if someone you know goes missing and, you know, your parent tries to ask you or anyone and you're like, don't ask about that. You know, It's a little. Oh, yeah little suspicious there. E's mom said that she didn't recall sell- uh, telling Sarah about this when they had spoken, but said that if E did say something like that, it was probably because she didn't want her to know the kind of people that she'd been hanging around with. She uh, particularly hadn't wanted her mom to know that she was hanging around A, because as we can tell, not, not really the best person if you're drugging people and stealing their wallet and phone so they can't call for help. On October 16th, the police re-interviewed Matthew's friend T. T had admitted to Sarah that he'd been with Matthew when he'd brought the drugs from A in the motel parking lot and that they had used the drugs all weekend together. T said that the Molly hadn't looked like Molly he'd seen before, but they still had immediately split it up and snorted it. A short while, uh, they both took a little bit more of it. T said that it didn't feel like a Molly high and that he actually believed that it was meth. He spent the rest of the day with Matthew and then dropped him off at his aunt's house. Before he left, he gave the rest of the molly that he had bought to Matthew because he didn't like the feeling. On October 22nd, the police gave an update to Matthew's mother about the status of the investigation. During this meeting, Sarah told them that Matthew had been with a co-worker shortly before the alleged attack at Rite Aid. She hadn't known the name of this co-worker, but she thought that she might have discovered a phone number listed in Matthew's phone under the name Workbro that might be this coworker. The police called this number and uh, ended up reaching the voicemail. They left a voicemail and no one ever called them back. When they tried calling it again later, it was no longer a working number. They'd made plenty attempts to call this number, but they have never been able to reach anyone. That's just spooky. It is very spooky. Very unsettling. I don't like that. Another possible clue was discovered around this time when Sarah discovered a video that Matthew had recorded at his aunt's house. This video was recorded on January 9th, 
And in the video, Matthew is talking about how he knows that if he goes against the Illuminati, he would die. This video was recorded prior to his communication with the Illuminati spam account found in his emails, but still shortly before he disappeared. The police report had a description of this video, and it goes as follows. In the video, it appears that Matthew is recording himself recording some kind of text document on his phone. It sounds like an oath of allegiance of some kind, and at the end, Matthew reads, I will never go against the laws of the great Illuminati Brotherhood. If I do, I will die. Uh, Sarah also provided the investigators with a video that Matthew had taken of himself after he was attacked at the Rite Aid that showed his injuries more clearly. Investigators then reached out to some of his co-workers at LaborWorks. Several of the employees didn't remember working with him or didn't really have much to say, but some did have some information. One remembered him returning to work after the Rite Aid incident and talking about how he was attacked, but this co-worker also said that Matthew never said who did it. The co-worker was also unsure if he was really getting the real story of what happened, so he also kind of felt like there might have been some details or like names intentionally left out when he got his version of the story. On December 27th, Another possible break in the case came when Sarah contacted the police after being told about someone who might have more information about Matthew's disappearance. During this conversation, Sarah had been told that Matthew owed a man some money from Zan uh, for some Xanax, or possibly fentanyl, that he had bought from him. They were able to track down one of these individuals and found that he was on the Thurston or in the Thurston County Jail on unrelated charges. The man confirmed that he did know Matthew and that they had met at a music studio in Lacey. The man told the investigators that Matthew had told him that he owed some white boys in Tumwater uh, some money and that they were after him. This individual provided several names of people who th he thought could have been the white boys mentioned, but he didn't uh, explain that he didn't know them personally, just their reputations. He explained that he heard that the man Matthew allegedly owed money to was a drug dealer who possibly had connections to bigger drug dealers. The man explained that he thought that it would be weird for this ringleader to kill someone over a drug debt, but he also explained that he always just kind of had a weird feeling in his gut that this guy might have been involved in the disappearance. Investigators decided to reach out to this man that Matthew allegedly might have owed money to, and when investigators arrived, they identified themselves and asked if the man knew Matthew. The man immediately replied, yes, but I don't know what happened to him, which is a little bit on the defensive there. He explained that he knew him from school, but they'd never really hung out. The man denied that Matthew had owed him money and also denied ever selling him drugs. He said the only time that Matthew had ever given him money was one time at school when Matthew had a fat stack of cash and had given him a hundred dollar bill. The investigators found this story hard to believe, and when asked why Matthew would just give him $100 for nothing, the man said, that was just what happened. I wish that happened to me. I would love to have random people come up and give me $100 bills. I'm not going to ask any questions. That's like my <laughs> favorite days when you like go into your closet, pull out your favorite coat, pants, whatever, and they're just like, yeah, $20 bill in there. Whoa. <laughs> love it. I might start doing that. Yeah, I'm going to get home and just start hiding the money that we got just <laughs> all over my clothes. That'd be great. It's a scavenger hunt. Oh, yes. With the man denying any involvement in Matthew's case, the investigators reached out to another name that had been mentioned. The woman explained that she'd been hearing rumors of Matthew's body being disposed of, of in the woods and that she'd been hearing rumors from everyone. She'd also heard that the man that the police had just interviewed, the one that claimed Matthew had given him $100 for no reason, had sold Matthew some fake Xanax, 
and when Matthew had refused to pay for or and Matthew had refused to pay for it. She'd heard that along with threatening Matthew, he had made threats against Matthew's family as well. She'd explained that she'd actually confronted this guy at a party. Boss bitch, that's awesome. And he had gotten defensive about it. He told her that she shouldn't be asking about that kind of stuff. She explained that about a week before Matthew went missing, the other man who had been interviewed about the man owed money had received a phone call from Matthew. Matthew was upset that this man was after him. Investigators found uh, a couple Snapchat messages dating a few days between, or a few days before Ma- Matthew's disappearance between him and the guy that had called him. In a follow-up interview with the man Matthew had allegedly called about the people who were after him, the man told the police that Matthew had told him that he'd actually been attacked at an abandoned gas station in Tumwater and not the Rite Aid like he told other people. The police file says it is possible that Matthew was jumped more than one time in December and that these are two separate incidents. So if there were two attacks, that just makes it even more bizarre. No, it does. Um, I've been sitting here trying to kind of tag in on some things. But yeah, I'm I'm going to. Yeah, it's one of those ones where it's like I'm confused. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. It's a very confusing case, and I know it's one of those ones where you try to sit and think of a theory, and it's like, well, nothing like am, really fits, you know? I am no longer whelmed. I am very overwhelmed. <laughs> Are you sufficiently whelmed? No, overwhelmed. <laughs> I am no longer sufficiently whelmed. And now, I, well, you perfect segue for that, because I think it's time for us to talk about some theories surrounding Matthew's disappearance. Really, they need to find out who was driving that white truck because I think Absolutely. that the person in that truck holds a lot of the answers to this. That's the biggest thing there. I, yeah, I was about to actually bring that up. Yeah, that guy in the truck definitely knows more than what we got to find that dude. Or could at least provide some really helpful information. Like, you know, if he said anything in the truck or why he ended up, you know, From, was, was yeah. he intending on going further than the speedway and exactly. he was acting so erratically that they put him out of the, you know dropped him off at the speedway because we've even you know? stopped by that speedway we were like we we were like walking around that area and just kind of like how this is just we were beside ourselves every time we've gone out there we've gone out there a few times we were just like what in the world that truck yeah that's got to be the like but at least a tiny missing piece yeah definitely that truck is a big piece of the puzzle that i think if they were able to find the person driving that truck hopefully they'd get a lot more answers yeah ready to wrap up i reckon Thank you for coming to Olympia Oddity's first ever live show. Thank you. Live from the Doom Saloon. The Portable Doom Saloon. There you go. The Portable Doom Saloon. We refer to our studio as the Doom Saloon for people who don't know. Uh, I'd like to thank Steven, my amazing co-host and button pusher for helping me through all my stressful times and talking me off the ledge and listening to me rant and rave about this case for months, honestly. Um, I'd like to thank Janelle. And all my Capital City dolls who came out to see me for keeping me sane and scheduling me true crime breaks to keep my brain working. And I'd like to thank all of you for coming out and supporting us. This is really awesome and it's a great opportunity. And, you know, for all of our fans of the show, it's awesome for you guys to come out. You can follow us on Instagram at Olympia Oddities Podcast as well as on Facebook. We also have a TikTok that I'm trying to get better at using. And we are most active on Instagram. I'm Trista, and you can follow my personal Instagram at Saloon Ghost. I'm Steven. You can follow my personal Instagram at the Steven Ramirez. Uh, yeah. Until next time, friends. I love you. <laughs>